trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a program dedicated to encouraging anybody within earshot to think as clearly and independently as they possibly can. Now, understanding, too, that that also is not without consequences, because you will be uh, labeled a wrong thinker. You may be shunned. You may be marginalized. You might even be called names or, I don't know, hooted at. I've never been hooted at, by the way, at least by anything other than an owl, but uh, it's it's a pretty scary thing for a lot of folks, but you're brave enough to seek the truth. I'm willing to speak the truth, although I would encourage you, don't take anything I say as gospel. I'm fallible. I could be wrong. I'm just a guy trying to make it and trying to figure things out, same as everybody else, and uh, happen to have a small platform from which to uh, share what I hope is timely, credible, and enlightening information. So, having said that, welcome to the show. And did you notice, starting to hear some rumbles about this mystery virus in China now is spreading, and it's apparently come to the United States, and there's something very familiar about what's happening, and I mean, even down to the way the timing seems to track along with the election cycle. It reminds me of something that we were experiencing, I don't know, maybe four years ago. Mysterious virus emerges in China. China's tight-lipped, but boy, it's spreading and there's concern. Doctors aren't sure what to think. And then, oh, now it's in the United States. Do you really think they're going to give it one more try? Try and stampede us back into into our cages? (laughs) I don't know. All I can say is, at this point, anybody who falls for the lie, well, they didn't learn much from the last three and a half years, did they? We've seen what these people in power, what the ruling class, the political class, not even necessarily the elected politicians, but just the the elite, the people who decided, well, what we should do is uh, ignore a hundred years of virology and and pandemic treatment or pandemic approaches, you know, in other words, what was established as medical science and and acceptable protocol, let's throw that out the window and instead pull the plug on every economy, shut them down, restrict people's rights, isolate them, break them psychologically against a virus that uh, 99.8% of people survived. Hmm. Yeah, let's see what what happens. What's the worst that could happen? I don't know, but I can tell you this. The only reason they would be wanting to try that again is because these people were not removed from power, tried, and either jailed or hanged if if it met uh, the Nuremberg standards as they should have been. And I get it. That sounds harsh. Brian, you're talking about, uh, you know, hanging public officials or hanging people in positions of authority. Yeah, wasn't that what the Nuremberg trials were about too, though? And why, why exactly did they do that? Well, those people in authority were destroying human lives. They were, they were ruining people's lives. They were doing evil things to people. Oh, and pushing through this therapeutic, they call it a vaccine, but, you know, they pushed and pushed and pushed and told us you will either get this or you lose your job. 
But then we come to find out, oh, but the vaccine uh, doesn't really prevent you from getting COVID. And no, it won't stop you from spreading COVID. And what was the statistic I saw the other day? And I, I haven't confirmed this, so, you know, a grain of salt. But I saw there's at least one study that seems to show about three quarters of the people who are dying of COVID right now. And yes, people do die from the virus. They're the vaccinated. What do you make of that? So if they push it through on us again, it's our fault. We're the ones who who weren't wise enough to recognize the pattern of, oh, they're making me scared. So I'll, you know, give up whatever protections or whatever desire I have to stand up for my own rights, my own autonomy. Do I dare say it? My own sovereignty. Sorry, I got I got worked into a rant a little quicker than I thought today, but. It's, maybe it's just those rumblings of, well, you know, we see we're following this mystery virus. I can tell you this. Any attempt at lockdowns, restricting church services, shutting down this business over that business, I don't think it's going to go well for the people in positions of authority. I think if they try that again, it's, it's going to go horribly wrong for them. Maybe for everybody. So why do it? Yeah, nothing but crickets, though, coming from, you know, again, the, the uh, ruling class and, and their enablers. Well, let's, uh, let's take a moment here to talk about how is it that they're able to, to foist these kinds of ideas, they being, you know, the ruling class, how do they manage to hoodwink so many people into going along with what they're saying? I mean, I get it. I've been scared before, too, and thought, well, you know, we better do what they say because, you know, we're not sure of where it's going, but... Come on, we had time to see. We've had time to see whether, you know, did, did the vaccine perform as advertised? It did not. And now we're seeing that gaslighting that comes with, well, uh, we never forced anybody to do anything. It was their choice. I mean, that's, this is like a mugger saying, hey, I didn't, I didn't rob you or anything. I just, I just was hitting you until you decided to give me what I was telling you to give me, your wallet. You know, that's, that's all it was. You know, it was your choice. You didn't have to do it. I could just keep on hitting you, but nobody forced you to hand, hand me your wallet. All right. I want to share an article here. This is from uh, Ron Paul about separating tech and state. And I know there's a lot of people that are very dedicated, you know, particularly on those church and state. we got to separate them very, very carefully. In fact, we got to kick church out of every facet of life, whether it's, you know, the public square or even the private square. We got to minimize that influence. It's terrible. Well, let's talk about separating tech and state. Ron Paul says some libertarians dismiss concerns over social media companies' suppression of news and opinions that contradict select agendas by pointing out, well, these platforms are private companies, not part of the government. But he says there are two problems with this argument. First, there's nothing unlibertarian about criticizing private businesses or using peaceful and voluntary means such as boycotts to persuade businesses to change their practices. The second most significant reason they are the, is that they are private, that they are the, pri- let's try that again. The second and most significant reason the they are private companies argument doesn't hold water is the tech company censorship has often been done at the request of government officials. So the extent of government involvement with online censorship was revealed in emails between government and, and employees of various tech companies. And in these emails, the government officials addressed employees of these private companies as though these employees were the government officials' subordinates. 
He's right, you know. Government officials using their authority to silence American citizens is a blatant violation of the First Amendment, even if they have a so-called wink-wink private middleman do it for them. (coughs) Yet some conservative elected officials and writers think the solution to the problem of big tech censorship is we need to give government more power over those technology companies. You see the problem? He says these pro-regulation conservatives ignore the fact that it would be just as unconstitutional if a conservative administration was telling tech companies who they must allow to access their platforms as it is when the progressives order social medias to de-platform certain individuals. Furthermore, since the average government official's political views are closer to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez than to Marjorie Taylor Greene, Giving government more power over social media companies is likely to lead to more online censorship of conservatives. So instead of giving government more power over social media, he says defenders of free speech should work to separate tech and state. An excellent place to start is pushing for passage of the Free Speech Protection Act. Now, unlike other legislation such as the Patriot Act and the Affordable Care Act, this one is accurately named. Introduced by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Ohio Representative Jim Jordan, the bill makes it a crime for any federal employee or employee of a federal contractor to use his position to communicate with a social media company to interfere with any American's exercise of First Amendment protected rights. Violators of this law would face fines of at least $10,000 as well as suspension, demotion, or even termination and a lifetime ban from working with the federal government. In addition to passing or working to pass the Free Speech Protection Act, Ron Paul says those who object to the big technology company's content moderation policies should abandon big tech for more free speech-friendly platforms. Many of the newer social media companies were started to meet the demand for a content moderation-free alternative to the dominant companies. Senator Paul himself stopped posting videos on YouTube because of its suppression of free speech. And Ron Paul says while his Liberty Report still airs on YouTube, its main platform is Rumble. He says it's wonderful to do a a show on any topic I choose without worrying about being canceled. You see his point? Big tech censorship is a problem created by big government. So the solution lies not with giving government more power, but with separating tech and state. Passing the Free Speech Protection Act and making big tech pay a price for cooperating with big government by leaving to use sites like Rumble? Those are two excellent places to start. You can check out this article in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These would be the show notes for November 29th, 2023. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I don't know if you have watched uh, network news anytime within the last, uh, well, the last few years, especially. One thing that will, will really hit you. Now, see, I've been away. I, don't, I do not watch nightly news or nightly network news. In fact, I don't watch any news whatsoever. I know. Well, you must be terribly uninformed. And perhaps I am. But I'll tell you this. When I do get the chance to watch the news, and usually it's when I'm visiting my elderly mother, it's absolutely astonishing how many of the commercials are drug companies. 
Seriously. You wonder, well, why is the news media really carrying water for Pfizer? Well, gee, I don't know. But, uh, gee, every other ad is, you know, this portion brought to you by Pfizer and Moderna or whatever. So, obviously, the drug companies are doing a lot to market directly to consumers. But they're not necessarily doing the public a favor. Got a great article here from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is by my friend Robert E. Wright. And it's the red pill for pill ad headaches. And he's got a great a great message here. Maybe this is something that you'll start to pick up on. According to Harvard Medical School, it's only the United States since 1997 and New Zealand that allow pharmaceutical manufacturers to advertise prescription-only nostrums directly to potential customers. In other words, to run drug ads telling the customer, hey, are you experiencing this? Well, maybe you should ask your doctor about this. Normally, there are pharmaceutical reps who will go around to the doctor's offices and to, you know, hospitals and, and, and personally approach physicians and try to sell them on the, you know, the, the efficacy of this medicine versus that medicine. By the way, it's a very, a very, very high paying position. And at least a few years ago, I don't know if it's still the same way. You didn't even need so much as a college degree to go out there and try to persuade doctors, hey, this is the drug you should be, you know, promoting to your patients. But uh, Robert E. Wright says Americans and Kiwis will be bombarded with drug ads again this holiday season, while readers elsewhere won't. And although most ads, he says, makes his skin crawl, he says, I don't call for America or New Zealand to join the rest of the world in banning or limiting them. But he says, I call on Americans and Kiwis to protect themselves by not asking their dogs or their doctors, their doctors rather, <laughs> for drugs by name. I mean, it's kind of a clever ploy on the part of the, the drug companies. Hey, ask your doctor if Viagra's right for you. you know, I mean, when you know the name, you almost feel like, well, I'm, gee, I feel informed enough. Even if I'm pronouncing it correctly, you know, the doctor's got to be impressed. Robert E. Wright says the red pill or reality of pill ads is that they're a tax, they're a form of tax-exempt legal bribery that hurts uninformed consumers. Now, the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, monitors direct-to-consumer advertising, or DCT, DTCA, to ensure that drug ads don't make false or misleading claims. It has, however, done a notoriously bad job at this. He says many dangerous drugs remained on the market for years, some for decades, before the FDA figured out they were not safe and effective. In fact, many were widely advertised before being yanked. So he says a subtle hint that Big Pharma has influenced or at least partially captured the FDA is the fact that drug ads reference side effects. That's a euphemism that downplays the importance or severity of the undesirable effects those drugs could cause. The common dry mouth effect, for example, sounds innocuous, but according to the Mayo Clinic, it can lead to tooth decay, gum disease, mouth sores, thrush, an oral yeast infection that can spread to the bloodstream with usually deadly results, and inadequate nutrition, which can cause a host of other health problems. Sometimes a drug will cause the very problem, like depression, that it purportedly reduces. Harvard doctors claim that, dr- that the ads raise drug prices by, manu- by increasing manufacturers' costs, but he says that doesn't quite ring true. He says pharmaceutical companies must benefit from this direct-to-consumer advertising in some way, or they wouldn't bother spending over $6 billion a year on it. So even if as quasi-monopolists they can pass most of the costs on to the consumers and their insurers, big pharma's execs could just pay themselves more instead. 
Unlike most products, consumers can't order drugs themselves. A doctor has to agree that the consumer or patient needs it. I think we had the, an earlier article a few weeks ago on this. You, you have to ask permission from your doctor to get what you need or what you think you need. Pharmaceutical marketing dollars are directed at both clinicians and consumers. He says a study out of Johns Hopkins claims that patients request and doctors prescribe advertised drugs more often than those drugs that are not advertised. And that makes sense, as doctors want to keep their patients happy and possibly get a second office visit fee for treating one or more undesirable side effects. The biggest boost in sales from direct-to-consumer advertising, though, comes from drugs with the lowest efficacy. Such an adverse selection problem is unsurprising as doctors and patients naturally spread the good word about efficacious drugs. And why wouldn't they? Hey, this really worked well for me. It's the not-so-hot drugs that need the repetition, the songs, and other usually emotion-based advertising ploys used in most direct-to-consumer advertising. Drugs are costly to to develop, so it's essential to squeeze every possible sale out of them. Now, that noted, it isn't clear that direct-to-consumer advertising pays for itself. Legal kickbacks to doctors, which take the form of both cash and in-kind payments, must be more cost-efficient than DTCA because such incentives directly influence the ultimate decision-makers, which are the doctors. Between 2015 and 2017, two in three U.S. doctors received pharmaceutical company kickbacks, over $2 billion worth per year, to promote specific drugs. Now, just as an aside, did you have the courage during the big push for the vaccines to ask your doctor, do you get any kind of compensation when someone takes the vaccine, because I've heard that there was essentially a bounty, 20, I think it was $200 for every patient they could get to agree to take the vaccine, the doctor could get a $200 bonus. That's pretty powerful incentive to push the heck out of that product. So what does Big Pharma gain from direct-to-consumer advertising? Robert E. Wright says tax write-offs, of course, and influence with media companies reliant on their ad spends. Pharmaceutical ads constitute the second largest source of the media industry's ad revenue and as much as three quarters of the revenue of some outlets. It's enough to get even big name news anchors fired if they criticize a pharma company or product. By the way, he links to a pretty interesting story on that one. If they criticize that product, they could be on the line or on the chopping block. Imagine the chilling effect the power of the pill purse has on mere minions. Now, Robert talks about uh, 15 years ago, he suffered from alopecia areata. That's a loss, loss of a patch of head hair. On his doctor's advice, he reduced the root cause, stress, and applied some kind of goop to the affected area, and the treatment worked. He says, I don't even remember the goop's, the recall the goop's name. If I relapse, I will again seek medical advice on the matter, but I will not request the drug treatment that I recently saw advertised. If the doctor prescribes it, I will ask if she's certain that it's the best medicine. It is, after all, advertised direct-to-consumer, which is a contraindication, doc-speak for a reason, not to prescribe it. He says, suppose all Americans and Kiwis look to their own self-interest by avoiding direct-to-consumer advertising drugs whenever possible. In that case, drug manufacturers would have an incentive to stop DTCA of their own accord, especially if tax authorities and or members of Congress begin to question the validity of the deductions. Once it became clear that more advertising leads uh, to fewer sales, consumer education and elimination of government subsidies can do the same work as a ban without costing the taxpayers or 
feeding the administrative state. That's a really common sense solution, and it is so much more aligned with freedom. I would say Robert needs to run for office, but I don't think he would want to. Why? Because he's a good man. He doesn't want power and he doesn't want to tell people this is how you should run your lives. Which, by the way, that's kind of the default that all of us should be running at. I'll have a link to his article in the website. If you haven't uh, visited the American Institute for Economic Research, AIER.org, you might want to consider doing that. Subscribe for their uh, daily emails. I get uh, emails from them each day. Three, four, maybe five different stories. Always interesting, always enlightening. A lot of the time over my head because they got some very, very smart writers that uh, contribute to them. I think you'd find it worth your time, especially if you're serious about being a wrong thinker. Well, hang on. We'll be back here just the other side of these messages on The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, I have a confession to make, and I'm not very proud of this, but uh, I know what I'm getting for Christmas. And actually, it's not because I was snooping around, but my wife just came across an exceptionally good buy on a uh, large cast iron skillet when she was shopping at Costco last week. She was like, hey, this is this looks like a pretty good good deal. She texted me a picture of it and question mark, like, what do you think? I was like, do it, do it. And the reason I, I jumped on that is because I love cast iron. I, I got this, I've got this bug. It bit me probably 25 years ago um, that I just, I have this desire to return to a traditional or ancestral kind of kitchen. And I was so happy to find an article today on intellectualtakeout.org that I think you would uh, would find interest if you've ever had similar inklings. This is from Cadence McManaman, and it's about easy swaps for the aspiring ancestral kitchen. Some people are going to, you know, really resonate with this. Maybe you are one of them, maybe you're not. But check out what she says. She says, many traditionalists greatly value real food and proper nutrition. We understand how our bodies do not prosper on fast food, modern additives, and trendy diets. Many of us are working to get back to a more ancestral kitchen to offer real nourishment and sustenance. Unfortunately, she says, few of us have the resources to actually live like our ancestors did. As much as I'd like to install a wood-burning stove and plant a one-acre garden, I don't have anywhere close to enough time, space, or money to do it. So the good news is there's no need to start entirely from scratch. We can reap most of the benefits we're looking for by working with the kitchens and pantries we already have. So let's explore some easy alternatives for common kitchen needs. Now, she's talking primarily about equipment here, but this gets into the food as well. So first, we, talk, we start with Modern Meats Ancestral. Let's talk about the kitchen alternatives that offer the benefits of tradition without the huge time investments of the past. As long as we have a functioning electrical outlet in the kitchen, we can try these. First thing she lists is bread makers. Now, very few of us have time to make our own bread from scratch with the long process of rising, kneading, rising again, dough resting, and then finally baking. By the way, more power to whoever can do it, of course. She says, this is where investing in a bread maker makes good sense. I use my hand-me-down bread maker almost daily, 
and a basic five-ingredient recipe that takes me four and a half minutes to make. Yes, this proud homeschool nerd timed herself. She says we have homemade bread without any additives or preservatives at less than 75 cents a loaf. We also can use a bread maker to make cakes, gluten-free breads, jams, and preserves. Second thing, dehydrators. Many nutritious diets include dried foods like fruits, vegetables, and meats, since dehydrating foods at low temperature retains their original nutritional value. So investing in an electric dehydrator lets us do this process ourselves in a fraction of the time natural air drying takes. Cadence says, in my experience, fruits and vegetables are the most foolproof foods to dehydrate. A full load of banana or apple slices takes between 8 and 12 hours to fully dehydrate. Now, historically, dried foods have been one of the safest options for long-term storage, not to mention they make tasty snacks. Third, she talks about freezers. Freezing is a great alternative to canning foods. Where our ancestors didn't have the option to freeze things in warm weather, we do, and it's a lot easier than canning. Almost any ingredient can be frozen fresh, and many fully cooked meals can be stored safely for months. She says most of her garden produce ends up in their chest freezer, ready to be pulled out and thawed during the long Midwestern winter. And finally, this is one of my favorites, the Instant Pot. The Instant Pot has a love-hate following. It's not a historical kitchen tool, but it offers results on a par with traditional cooking methods. She says, I use mine for soups, broth, stock, quinoa, beans, but it can also be used for meats, cakes, yogurt, pasta, and more. An hour is about the longest you'll need to cook anything, even soup bones. The Instant Pot is perhaps the most time-efficient hack to getting old-fashioned meals in a modern kitchen. Now, from here she turns to the oldies but goodies, and this is where my heart kind of leapt. She says, sometimes our great-grandmothers did know best. These are truly traditional tools that we can also easily use. Cast iron, stainless steel, or ceramic glass cookware. Popular modern cookware materials like plastic, Teflon, and aluminum have possible health risks. Traditional kitchens rely on proven, safer materials for cooking. Cast iron is considered unrivaled in delivering perfect flavor, although it takes some maintenance and care. Stainless steel requires very little maintenance and offers results just as good as non-stick options. Ceramic or glass baking pans are breakable, but they're cleaner and safer than most modern options. Next, she talks about herb pots and backyard gardens. We can grow fresh herbs right on our kitchen windowsills. Many vegetables can be grown in pots, too. In fact, she says in her experience, leafy greens tend to do better than root vegetables or larger plants. Better yet, we could turn a few square feet of lawn into a vegetable garden. Even apartment buildings in cities sometimes do rooftop garden projects for tenants. Homegrown vegetables are healthy and hearty and, of course, usually cheaper than buying fresh produce all the time. And then she gets to glass jars. Now, this is a big one for me because my wife's family, her mother especially, is really into canning. And so we collect all the mason jars and the lids and rings that we can. Cadence McManaman says glass jars are a fantastic alternative to plastic bags. Most glass jars are also freezer-friendly, and many can be reused for years in canning projects. A frugal hack is to wash and save glass jars we're already buying. She says, I imitate my grandmother who washed, saved, and reused jars from jams, pasta sauces, and pickles. Why send it to the recycling center when we can recycle them right there in our own kitchens? Number four, she talks about buying ingredients rather than meals. By the way, that's a huge money saver. This is a mindset switch which we can adopt 
in order to stock our pantries well and nourish ourselves. So when we're grocery shopping, we can ask ourselves whether the items in our cart are meals or ingredients to make a meal. Buying meals might involve a lot of prepackaged foods, microwavable lunches, and added salt, preservatives, and fillers. And she says there are times, of course, when we rely on these, but if possible, she says we should aim to buy ingredients instead. That means looking for the most basic ingredients possible and doing the work of putting the meal together in our own kitchen. We might buy more in bulk, stock up on single dry ingredients like flour, sugar, and salt, get more produce, and so forth. I thought these were really good suggestions. Cadence McManaman concludes by saying, getting back to our roots doesn't have to be overwhelming. Our kitchens already have the most important tool necessary, which is ourselves. Our creativity, resourcefulness, and effort will go much further toward benefiting our families than any wood-burning stove or backyard milk cow ever could. Although she's right. That's part of the, that's part of the dream, too, at least for me. I thought that was a really well-put-together defense of traditional cooking as well as a return to uh, some of the traditional tools. But I'm telling you, that Instant Pot is a great way to save yourself time. Uh, case in point, I have, uh, because my, my biological dad lives in Albuquerque and he is very, very steeped in all things Southwest, he sends me, you know, amazing things to enjoy, like green, hatch green chili powder or uh, what were they called? Anasazi beans. I think that's what they were. They're very interesting looking beans. Nonetheless, I love refried beans. But if you've ever cooked beans, you know it takes a long time to cook a pot of beans, especially if you're starting with dry beans. First, you gotta you gotta wash them, you gotta rinse them, you gotta wash and sort. Make sure there's no rocks included, because sometimes that happens. Then you gotta soak them, sometimes overnight, and cook them. And it can take hours. I mean, it takes a long time to go from basic dry bean to amazing refried beans, unless you have an instant pot in which case you can perfectly cook the bean. And by the way, the mark of a perfectly cooked bean is you uh, pick it up, carefully hold it between your thumb and forefinger, blow on it, and the skin should either lift up or blow off in places. That's how you know it's perfectly cooked. You can do that, I believe, in under an hour in an instant pot, as opposed to, well, they soaked overnight, and now we're going to cook them all day long, and hopefully they won't be crunchy, you know, when we're done. Perfectly cooked. So, if that sounds like a flex, it's really not. I haven't made that uh, that many batches of refried beans, but I'll tell you, from soups to cooking ribs to whatever you want to do, if you need to cook a meal quickly, pressure cooking it in an instant pot where you can also saute it or or if, if you want to just make yogurt, you know, you can keep the temperature low. They're astonishing time savers. I mean, it's no wonder that uh, you look around now, everybody's got uh, got an instant pot in their, in, their fr- in their kitchen, rather. And probably an air fryer, too, because in many cases, that's a lot healthier than, you know, dipping everything into boiling oil. Although I will be the first to admit... Seems like everything that's fried in boiling oil tastes better somehow. Nevertheless, I will include a link to this article so you can check it out for yourself. A lot of good links within, too. Again, this is from Cadence McManaman on intellectualtakeout.org. Easy swaps for the aspiring ancestral kitchen. 
just go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes for November 29th, 2023. You can check it out for yourself. Back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you find this to be more than just a a regular list of uh, these are the things and the people that I hate. And if you hate them too, you know, mash the subscribe button, slide into my DMs or whatever the the, the term may be today. I want you to uh, consider some, some interesting insights and aspects of the world that may not necessarily be political at all. Now, having said that, I'm about to launch into a couple of uh, rather politically oriented articles, but I thought they were fascinating nonetheless. <coughs> Excuse me. This is our article of the day. And it's uh, it kind of brings to mind that old saw about, you know, the left just can't handle being laughed at. And I think this is true. The really hardcore leftists, nothing infuriates them worse than ridicule and laughter. Now, look, I don't think it's a good idea to go around ridiculing everybody. And I'm, I'm just coming at this from the basic uh, golden rule. However, satire, parody, being able to laugh at yourself, that's not really attacking someone or, you know, satire done properly is more about attacking ideas or attitudes than it is individuals. But I do think it's a good idea to be able to laugh. And now I've got a great article here from Igor Chudov describing how some Australian political scientists apparently are now claiming that humor is a danger to our democracy. So he starts by saying, my readers, I am sorry for sprinkling humor and sarcasm throughout my Substack post. My apologies. Had I known that social scientists Jordan McSwiney and Kent Senegal found the use of humor and ridicule to be an insidious attack on our democracy... I would certainly avoid even a trace of sarcasm or humor in my articles. Sorry, my my sarcasm detector's picking up some pretty high levels here, but I'm I'm liking it. And he has has a little excerpt from their article here. Humor, ridicule, and the far right. Mainstreaming exclusion through online animation. So this is from the abstract of their paper. And you've got to understand the key words of this abstract of, of this paper Racism, humor, mainstreaming, far-right, video, critical discourse analysis. This paper critically examines the use of online humor and ridicule to promote and normalize far-right exclusionary discourses. We explore the strategic use of humor in the communicative arsenal of the contemporary far-right. Now, this includes things, uh, uh, ideas that they that they say are, were being advanced through humor are racism, misogyny, queerphobia. That's why humor, I guess, must be stamped out. Frivolity and irony of the online animated genre works to stretch the boundaries of the sayable, potentially making the content more palatable to non-far-right audiences. Wow. So according to these officers, or these authors, rather, the evil far-right forces invented a novel, innovative, and subversive discourse technique called humor. This is actually how they put it. It is broadly accepted that contemporary far-right actors, be they parties, movements, or activists, are savvy media performers who employ a range of innovative communication strategies to exploit the highly mediatized and hybridized political landscape. 
A particular focus in recent times has been the effective use of humor and irony as part of the far right's social media strategy. So they're saying humor is being used insidiously. Humor and laughter have powerful social functions. Through sharing a joke, humor can, can positively impact social cohesion by generating feelings of enjoyment through shared laughter. Very dangerous for democracy. It endangers group cohesion and solidarity in a manner that is fun, engenders rather, group cohesion and solidarity in a manner that is fun and playful. So that's, that's what's got their panties bunched. It brings people together in a fun, playful manner. As a form of effective rhetoric, humor can persuade or align, facilitating social cooperation by uniting interlocutors. I do think they got paid by the word, yes. Now, Igor Chudov says, we're starting to see how dangerous humor is because laughter can keep social groups together, which is totally unacceptable. Now, the authors go on, but they're being very serious. They're bordering on the pompous. But humor can also be used to divide and marginalize, constructing and maintaining social distance and inequalities. In the form of ridicule, humor serves to target, discipline, marginalize, and alienate groups and individuals who are othered. Humor can therefore be both pro and antisocial. One can laugh with others and at others. In doing so, humor may simultaneously foster greater social affiliation with the in-group and greater social distance against out-groups, and so plays a, an active role in boundary maintenance. Through negative portrayals of the other, casting them as buffoonish, dangerous, inferior, and the like, exclusionary humor reproduces and normalizes social hierarchies. Isn't that something? Such joking works to support exclusionary notions and structures, regardless of the intention of the joke-teller. Humor, it turns out, makes materials more accessible to neutral audiences. From their paper, here humor helps the far right to soften their ideological content, deactivating social boundaries and making their materials more palpable to non-far right audiences. Now, there's a lot more to this article. I will let you discover that on your own. It's in my show notes under the article of the day. Click on it at thebrianheidshow.com. I think you'll find it well worth your time. But if, if there was ever a great incentive to maintain your sense of humor, not to go out and target people and, you know, take pride in ridiculing everybody, but simply understand the people who are trying their best to corral you, the ones who are doing their best to subjugate you and keep you under their thumb, you naughty child, they can't handle humor. They can't handle the thought of you being happy and well-adjusted in spite of their best efforts to bring you to heal. So laugh in their face if necessary just to show that you get the final say as to whether you're happy or overjoyed or, or filled with mirth or whatever. It's true. They really can't stand it. One final note too. This is our, this is our final article for the day. What exactly is it about masculinity that enrages those on the left so deeply? Great article here from Dex Barr. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And he talks about how traditional masculinity triggers the godless left. Like a cross to a vampire, traditional masculinity triggers the godless left. And he asks, why is this so? So much of leftism attacks classic masculine traits like courage, assertiveness, independence, and leadership. Well, here's why it must. Could it be because masculinity is normal? Think about this. Everything about the left is a parody and a counterfeit. Leftist policies and goals are steeped in chaos with the upending of what used to be accepted behaviors of the two sexes. 
There's nothing chaotic about true masculinity. If anything, masculinity produces order and calm, which is kryptonite to the radical left. Take a guess as to the masculinity poster boy who most triggers the godless left. Yeah, that would be uh, President Donald Trump. Let's see, the left labels Trump as bombastic and braggadocious, yet he exhibits those masculine traits of courage, assertiveness, independence, leadership, and results in spades. Maybe that's why the left and rhinos on the right hate him. Trump not only exemplifies those qualities, but celebrates other men who project those qualities. Just look at any of his rallies. He always makes a point of singling out people in his audience who look like men's men. He highlights and celebrates that as one alpha male to another, which gets the left seething. Toxic masculinity this and toxic masculinity that, they whine, as if every male is a bully or misogynist. Now, there are some jerks who exhibit those uh, negative qualities, of course. But who stands against those who bully others? That's right. It's the masculine male. The experts say toxic masculinity is harmful to nations because of misogyny, dominance, and violence. So from there he goes and examines those examples one by one. Most masculine men are chivalrous to women because of their upbringing. Notice you almost never hear the left discuss chivalry as a part of masculinity. Nope. All we hear associated with masculinity is sexism. Dominance is also true to true ma- is also alien rather to true masculinity. These men don't obsess over bending people to their will. You know why? Because they're too busy living their lives, taking care of their families, working their jobs. Only godless narcissists and sociopaths walk around contemplating how they can dominate society and culture. Remember, control is a reaction to fear. Now that brings us to violence. For real toxic males, violence is a go-to, whether it's raging protecting fragile egos, dominating women, or impressing peers with random assaults. We're talking developmentally arrested individuals lacking self-control. For them, violence is strength. On the other hand, threats to family, friends, innocence, and personal safety are go time for the traditional masculine man. These are males with self-control and patience up to a point. And while these men are not prone to violence, they're also not afraid to use it when needed. The point here is God imbued masculinity to men to protect, build, carry on the species, fight, and if necessary, defeat evil. So when you hear people going on about demonizing masculinity in favor of radically feminizing culture, keep in mind that what they're doing is withering the United States of America as well as Western civilization. There's more to this article. I'll give you the opportunity to discover it for yourself. Go to thebrianheidshow.com, click on the show notes. And enjoy. These are the show notes for November 29th, 2023. And again, my deepest thanks for tuning in today. This is The Brian Hyde Show.